John Don once said, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent. This is Save versus Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. Today we're talking about cohorts, minions, henchmen, hirelings, men-at-arms, people that serve you. Right. So, what exactly is a cohort? Well, when we're talking about cohorts in RPGs specifically, our definition is a NPC that is not a player character over which the player has a degree of control. Now, it's worth noting that a cohort is not a PC because a player character is typically a character that the player has full exclusive rights to control over and whose information is all known to the player. That is, anything they see, touch, feel, all that is given to the player as information. A cohort, by contrast, is a character that you don't necessarily get all of that, but can exert a degree of control over. That is really kind of the difference between a cohort and a normal NPC. The player character gets a little bit of control, but not a lot of control. And there's a long storied history of characters like this in RPGs. In fact, in the very earliest RPGs, like D&D First Edition, there were cohorts, hirelings, henchmen, and followers of various sorts. According to this book that I have right here in front of me, almost like we researched this beforehand. Yeah. At 18 Charisma, you could have up to 15 henchmen and hirelings, which is insane by today's standards. That's a whole little army. Yeah, that's a tiny little army of characters. That's first edition and second edition kept with that basic theme as well. So in both editions, like at the maximum starting charisma, you have up to 15 henchmen. That's typically about four parties worth of characters, including yours. So that is a lot of characters. But I mean, there was some breakdown of how that worked out. Ultimately, the big thing was that you could have a lot of characters joining you. In 3rd edition, they changed this around by having the leadership feat. This is kind of where things broke down, because most people consider leadership to be broken. A big part of this is that there was a presumption of fairness in 3rd edition. In 2nd edition and 1st edition, it was largely just the DM creates a world, throws monsters at the player characters, and as you DM, you get experience in how balance works out. Now, the typical sort of rule of thumb was however many hit dice the monster had, that made it equivalent to a character of that level. So if like a kobold has uh, one-eighth hit die, then eight of them equals one player character of first level. Whereas if uh, a centaur has seven hit dice, it's about a seventh level character. But there was a lot of gray area with that, and a lot of that was just the DM learning how to work those sort of things out. Third edition, one of the major and most exciting things they introduced was the concept of challenge rating. The scale that allowed you to recognize what is an appropriate challenge for a player, independent of just saying it has this many hit points. Now, the way the challenge rating worked out was, generally, a CR3 was enough of a challenge to take on four third-level characters. Now, the weird thing about this is that a CR7 was enough to take on four level 7 characters, but at 7th level, you could take leadership, which would then 
often give you a 6th level or 5th level character that also was in your party. And therefore, kind of made things easy. And this, well, why was that, John? Why? A big part of it was that you're getting a whole additional character. And in 3rd edition, and starting with 3rd edition, they started to focus more on things like the action economy. How many actions a character could do in a given turn. Anytime you could get more actions, it was almost always better than any other basic mechanical benefit. Um, I'm not going to try to break down the math right now, but there, there's a lot of analysis on this. And you can look it up and actually crunch the numbers. But as a general rule it's worth taking a penalty to make an extra attack, which means that having a character with a lower attack bonus who gets an attack as well is worth having around. The leadership feat would give you a resource that was disproportionately powerful for what you were spending for it. You're spending one feat to basically get a whole new set of actions. And this really broke down when you started to get things like a cohort who could use scrolls or give you potions or do any other sort of action. Plus, they get a share of treasure, and there's an assumption that they're going to continue to level up as well. And it all becomes this muddied, broken-down thing that can really upset the game balance. And again, it's because of that presumption of fairness, that there was an expectation that for the first time in gaming history, you were going to be facing challenges appropriate to your level. But that was really more of 3rd edition's issue. I mean... Newer editions probably deal with it better. What? How did they deal with it in 4th edition? They didn't. There, there's no leadership feed in 4th edition. Actually, no specific rules for cohorts at all. Like, you weren't... They weren't given rules for allies that could come with you. And the DM guide actually discourages this sort of thing. It says, yeah, you should probably try to avoid this. And there's actually good reason for that. You still had the druid who had his animal companion. How did animal companions work in 4th? Well, for a lot of those abilities, they were just part of the character. Like, if your animal companion did something, that was your action for the turn, is having your animal companion do something. Or if you had, like, a spirit guide or something like that, your action was sending your spirit guide to do this thing. You didn't get to have your spirit guide do something, and then you attacked as well. Some summon-type effects worked this way, but I, if I recall correctly, there were some also, there were also some more standard-style summon effects, which, again, broke the action economy and were generally considered broken. Am, am I remembering that correctly? No, the summons in 4th edition used up your minor action to do an attack. Oh, oh right, yeah, no, I remember that now. Actually, again, it's another way of maintaining that action economy. They didn't want to break down that action economy by giving you a whole extra set of actions. And that really kind of feels disingenuous. Like, it feels like if you have a man-at-arms, if you have an ally soldier, if you have your squire come up with you, that he should be able to fight in the combat with you. Well, yeah, no, and I agree with that in general. But here's the thing, is when you're playing a game, there is an assumption that everyone's going to be playing the game on more or less the same terms. And the more animal companions and allies and, and henchmen you have the more you get to control the narrative and how things run and you get to dominate combat with that sort of thing. That That's where cohorts become difficult and dangerous is in that they can quickly become an overshadowing focus of the game. 
the more you get to control the narrative and how things run and you get to dominate combat with that sort of thing. That's where cohorts become difficult and dangerous is in that they can quickly become an overshadowing focus of the game. Well, let's move this back from the more gamist systems and into a more narrativist system. Allies often work out really well in narrativist games. White Wolf storyteller games. How do they deal with cohorts? Well, in World of Darkness, you have merits that you can spend uh, to gain abilities for your character. And some of those abilities would be these cohorts, but they'd be categorized by their narrative value more than by just what they are. For example... You could have contacts, allies, mentors, or retainers. Now, typically a contact wouldn't show up in a scene, right? It would just be something that you have access to. It'd be like a fence who can help you uh, sell stolen goods or a buddy at the police station who can look up someone's uh, criminal record for you, but you better leave them a box of donuts or something, you know, stuff like that. Whereas allies was people who would um, actually intervene in situations and be involved in the scenes, but the allies don't typically just obey your back and call. They're still people who have their own agenda, and as long as your interests are aligned, they're on your side, they're, they're on your team. Now, what I like about those is that they're often groups of people. If you have contacts, you have contacts in the police department. Oh, yeah, I know the guy who's the desk clerk at the police station. Oh, I know the booking officer. And you might know a group of guys. You might have a general set of contacts. You might have a specific. However, it serves the narrative goals of the system. Same with allies. Allies can be a broad group or a really narrow group. It can be a few crooked cops who help you brush some of your illegal activities under the rug. Or it could just be that you have a general rapport with the police station, like you're a retired police officer, and these are your brothers. You know, these are your fraternal brothers in the fraternal order of police. Or your lodge brothers at the Mason Lodge, whatever. These are people who are on your side explicitly, but are not necessarily just going to do whatever you want for you. These are your friends in the biker gang just down the street. Yeah, exactly. But uh, when you get into mentor and retainer, you're talking about a specific individual. Now, a mentor, as the name implies, is someone who's there to uh, give you guidance and share their wisdom with you. And they're typically more advanced than you. But because of this, they have their own agenda, not only their own agenda, but their own interests. So a mentor isn't as likely to just be at your beck and call. Also, as the name implies, the mentor considers you the student. So you're not there to boss them around. They're there to provide you with guidance. Retainer, however, kind of represents more of the opposite relationship. Not quite, but in a sense, a retainer is a individual that you have a rapport with that you get to direct in some way. The rules are vague about this. That's the great thing about how White Wolf's narrative system works is that it doesn't strictly define these concepts. It just tells you what this merit represents, and you're the one who fleshes out exactly what the expression of that is. Two of my favorite NPCs from 
our World of Darkness games actually are great examples of retainer and mentor. A retainer was a character by the name of Dimitri. He was the ghoul child of the character Jezebel, and he was a big, strong protector, and he was powerful enough, but he never overshadowed the scene, even in situations where he was the very center of the scene. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was, uh, I remember those games very well. Good times. He was a huge bullet sponge. He could take up enormous amounts of damage. He didn't really deal out a ton of damage, but he could take up a ton of damage. He was great at positioning himself between a threat and his Rainyot, Jezebel, and he also kind of ran interception between her and her sire, Tarjay. So that was really interesting use of a retainer-type character. He provided her not only only with that defensive measure, but he also acted as a sort of buffer against uh, other threats, you know, and was a reminder that even though Jezebel wasn't physically intimidating, that she could still get stuff done. One of my other favorite NPCs was a mentor. It was actually the first time that John and I collaborated on a character together. It was this character named William Einhander. Now, William Einhander was a professor, I believe that he studied in England, and often would take troubled students under his wing and gift them with great knowledge. His vast worldly experience would just fill their minds. Whatever they wanted to know, he could let them know. For a price. Because he was a demon, of course. Uh, an ancient Egyptian demon named Rehefenu or something like that. I actually pulled out like an Egyptology type name for a malicious entity. And he acted as a mentor for my mage character who would provide him with guidance on certain supernatural concepts, especially those related to spirits, uh, angels, demons, and like, as well as lost cults in ancient religions. And in both of these cases, the character started out at a lower dot rating and then went up to a higher dot rating. And again, there's a lot of narrative uh, give and take with that. For instance, with Dimitri, uh, Dimitri started out as a three-dot retainer, became a four-dot retainer when he became a more powerful ghoul and gained some new abilities. And then when Jezebel finally embraced him, he was a five-dot retainer who got the full vampire template placed on him. So he was like a second, again, like a second character. And even though she had a lot of control over Dimitri, at the same time, you as the storyteller... I would often run Dimitri and roleplay him, but I would often defer to Jezebel, John's wife, and defer to her in what she wanted to have happen in the scene. Exactly. She got to narrate and dictate what the character did, but a lot of the actual narrative elements were left open to the storyteller, which is kind of how White Wolf's system for cohorts works. Similarly, Einhander was always willing to assist my character and give him the guidance he sought, but a lot of times it was storyteller fiat that determined exactly what form the payment for that would take and exactly what kind of penalties and disadvantages I was taking for that, like the, the time that I uh, had to cut off my pinky toe um, and feed it to him, which is some, some weird stuff, but that, I mean, it's, it's a world of darkness. It gets pretty dark and gross. But in that case, he went from a three-dot mentor up to a five-dot mentor eventually, which meant that he was providing 
more useful guidance and also that the price for most of his guidance had been largely paid in advance. So those both represented ways in which the characters grew without just changing them, trading them out, or just adding a new character on top. And generally speaking, this is how I like to have these allied NPCs work. They are directed by the player characters, but mostly under the DM's control. Now, the Pathfinder Society actually has a completely different way of dealing with cohort. Well, in Pathfinder, obviously, in the core rules, vanilla core rules, it still has the leadership feat from D&D 3.5 and... 3rd edition, it's actually worth noting that literally every D20 organized playgroup, like the Wizards of the Coast organized play, Pathfinder Society, all of the different groups, uh, Living Greyhawk, all of them banned leadership. Every single one. It was always a banned feat. You just could not take it because it was such a game-disrupting problem in those systems. But in Pathfinder Society, their answer to this was there are followers that you can get. And as payment for them, you have to spend the prestige points that you earn for accomplishing the goals throughout the various Pathfinder missions. These NPCs travel with your character, but don't take up space on like the combat grid or anything. They don't have generally stats or anything like that. They're characters that accompany them, but otherwise stay in the shadows, but they provide a mechanical benefit. The one that always comes to my mind, which was my favorite and definitely worth spending the points on when I played Pathfinder Society, was the porter, who just carries 100 pounds of gear for you. And it, he doesn't appear in combat. He doesn't take up space on the board. He, You don't really have to consider him when you consider your travel arrangements or anything. He's just part of your character. You have a porter with you who carries 100 pounds of gear. Now, this is interesting. It kind of takes the Bioshock Infinite approach to escorting around a weaker character. Oh, yeah, because everyone knows that escort missions were the worst part of any video game. And in Bioshock Infinite, this escorted NPC just didn't take damage. She yeah. she never got in your way and oftentimes would find interesting things for you and help you out even if you were in the middle of a gunfight. Yeah, she'd throw you like a container of salts, which is your power stat, or she'd give you a health potion or throw you a coin or whatever. In the middle of a firefight, she was never in danger as far as the actual gameplay was concerned. At no point... Did someone, like, kill her or did she take damage and you needed to run over and revive her or anything like that? She was literally just there to help. She only ever contributed positively to you. And apart from that, just faded into the shadows where she could be forgotten and ignored. Which is great, actually. It was one of the best things about the gameplay in that game. At no point did it feel like an escort mission. And every time you were separated from her, you felt actual, like, personal anxiety. Like, I'm not as powerful. I lack the resources that I got from her. And Pathfinder Society takes kind of the same approach. Like, let's just give you these NPC characters that provide you with a mechanical benefit, but otherwise fade to the shadows. But it, you were talking about it being disingenuous earlier with how some editions do it. Yeah, it feels like it's not quite right. Before we started recording, I hit on this idea of if you have the noble and powerful knight, you need his squire. The squire will go and fetch his shield. The squire will go and rein in his horse if he falls off it. The squire is a potent character in and of himself and needs to be there for the knight to be awesome. Yeah, Don Quixote needs his Sancho. But no one wants to play the squire to the knight. Everyone wants to play the knight. 
And having this just mechanical benefit of, oh, your horse doesn't run away because your squire gets it. Oh, you can have your shield out because your squire... Bre- doesn't feel right. It feels like you need this extra character here. It can kind of feel like a cop-out, but I think that's partially because we're kind of conditioned to expect our games to have a certain kind of verisimilitude. We expect um, we expect role-playing games to be real and fair in a way we, we often hand-wave in video games. You know, like uh, there was this uh, Sega Genesis game, Shining... And I'll say it was Shining in the Darkness. And a couple of times during that game, it was it was one of those old school first person view dungeon crawlers where you're going through a dungeon and monsters would come and then there'd be a turn-based combat and kill the monsters and move on. A couple of times during the game, you would pick up an NPC for some reason. And the NPC didn't have stats and didn't participate in combat every round, but every once in a while he'd hop in. There was a character that might jump in and just heal the party out of nowhere. There was another one that might smite undead if your guys went up against some undead monsters. And there was one who would just, like, out of nowhere do, like, a slam attack that hit, like, everything for 700 damage. Just ridiculous damage. And we all accepted that in a video game because we didn't expect it to be simulationist at all. We expected it to... To be a video game. But for RPGs, we want them to run this tightrope between being simulations, games, and narratives. So far, we've been talking about game systems that are a few years out of date. The newest edition of D&D we haven't even touched on. 5th edition D&D deals with cohorts, hirelings, and henchmen in a more old school way. You can hire them. There's really no mechanical limit to them. And the reason for this is because a certain challenge of enemy is really good for a broader range of levels of characters. Part of that is that in 5th edition, there isn't as steep a linear progression of power. I mean, for instance, proficiency bonus only goes up however... It goes from plus 2 at the beginning, I believe, to plus 5 or plus 6 at the highest level. Yeah, yeah, whereas this was represented by your base attack bonus and stuff in 3rd edition, right? Yeah, which, if you were a fighter, went all the way from 1 to 20. Yeah, it was literally plus 1 every level. Also, sometimes you could take feats that give you additional... Under certain circumstances or with certain weapons, the power progression was so much larger with 3rd edition and with 4th edition than it was with 5th edition. 5th edition kind of reins it in more without making you feel like leveling up isn't important. And I really I really have to applaud it. It's not my favorite edition, but I do have to applaud it in accomplishing that because it does open it up to that whole... You know, you can have a party of three characters, you can have a party of six characters. It's still, you know, still going to be fair, interesting fights. I really look forward to seeing what Pathfinder 2nd Edition does with this. Now, at some point, we'll have to review Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Um, I think this August, we'll even be looking over the playtest material if you want to tune in for that episode. I am super enthusiastic about that, by the way. I really, uh, really have been looking forward to the 2nd Edition. I am a little trepidatious because I know that new editions... 4th Edition is probably the biggest disappointment in... In my entire gaming career and we all know how I feel about fourth edition and how Jeremy feels about fourth edition and that's kind of tempered my excitement for new editions of games so second edition I don't know if I'm I'm super enthusiastic to see what happens but I'm also cautious about it and I think that in this respect it might tune in these things a little better kind of try to 
work leadership back into being a workable ability. And and I've got a lot of reasons for this hunch, but right now it is just a hunch. There's nothing officially released in the playtest material to make this clear. But I do think that it's going to move in that direction. And I have a few reasons for that that I, I don't really want to get into right now. But 5th edition... Yeah, 5th edition allowed you to have these extra, less powerful characters come along with your party, still contribute to combat sometimes, and they do give you a bit of power boost, but not so much so that it is game-breaking. Yeah, which is really cool and does a great job of adding to the game. So why did we want to talk about cohorts to begin with? Because they fall into the wayside, and I think they're a great part of gaming, and you likewise agree that they are something that definitely kind of needs a revival. One of the things that I feel is super necessary for any gaming group is some way for the DM to relay information to the players without just feeding them information outside of game, going, hey guys, go to this dungeon over here. And oftentimes the idea of the DMPC, the character that travels along with the player characters, who is the DM's pet character, is... That is such a problem. Is the dreaded DMPC for a reason. But these cohorts and allies, I feel, really hit that sweet spot. They give the DM a way of adding information to the player characters, giving the party all this extra information without overshadowing them at all. Something that really needs to be emphasized about that, though, is that it only works if the players retain some degree of control. Because... When the DM gives full control and doesn't give up any to the player characters, one, it loses its value as a trust-building exercise. It becomes clear that this is the DM's character, that the player characters need to keep their hands off. Whereas what we're proposing, what we're talking about, is focusing on making it clear that this is a character that is here as a resource for the players, not as just a tool for the DM. And that when the DM is using this as a tool to advance the story, I I think there was even something in the second edition Player's Handbook for D&D that talked about how a cohort is a great tool for the DM as long as it's clear that this is still sort of a property of the player characters. It's not something that belongs to the DM. It belongs to the players and the DM is using it as a way to give resources and information to the players. Now, if John and I haven't really sold you on the idea of adding cohorts, hirelings, minions, and whatnot back into your game, I want to give one last little anecdote here. There is a comic called Nodwick. In this comic, there is this adventuring party, and along with them, there is the trusty torchbearer and porter, Nodwick. Who is Nodwick? He stands in the back, he holds the torch, he carries the party's treasure. And he is such a wonderful, doofy character. He's constantly crapped on by the PCs of this comic. And he is lovable and he's endearing and he's more than just a tool for these PCs to use. He is a character in his own right and he is the star of this comic. 
Yeah, even though he uh, dies so frequently that they just duct tape his head back on after a while. It's an interesting thing to recognize that these characters can really add so much depth and interest to a game. And it's important as DMs to recognize that a big part of the reason the DM PC is a problem is that it steals from the players. It steals their limelight. It steals their interest in the game. It's like the old joke that after a while he's just dungeon masturbating, you know? It's He's just uh, playing with himself, as it were. And that's what we're trying to avoid. And giving up the control of the cohorts avoids that sort of DMPC problem where you have this DM character that just overshadows everything. And that's why we really want to sell you on this idea of reintroducing, reconsidering the concept of cohorts and how you can work it into your game. And I hope we've inspired you in several ways to think of this in different ways. Think of how White Wolf handles it. Think of how Pathfinder Society handles it. And even think of the obviously broken way in that which 3rd Edition handles it. And how you might be able to work even within those constraints to create an interesting game. So what do we have up next? Okay, we've spent enough time. We're ready to actually tackle this topic. Up next, we are going to be talking about expansions. For real. For real this time. We actually mean it. We are ready. We're not going to waffle on it this time. This time, we are going to talk about expansions, why board games have them, why they are introduced, other than, of course, that companies just want to make money, because there are really good reasons for expansions to exist, and what they can bring to your gaming table, and what makes them right or wrong for your group. So, once again, this has been Save vs. Rant. Thank you very much for listening. When the best leader's work is done, the people say we did it ourselves. Loud Tzu. Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at saveversusrant.com, or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.